rest of my family, a lot of them stay at arm's length because I, uh, I don't feel like they really understand or care to understand what's going on, which is exactly why I started my blog. I don't want to throw my disease in, in anybody's face. I just I want to put it out there, though, so that if there are people who want to know what's going on, that's where they can go now. Like, they don't have to, they don't have to ask me how I am if they don't care. And if they do, this is where they can learn more. If at any point, you know, I felt like if at any point any of my relatives wanted to actually know what was happening, there it was. And, uh, and if they wanted to come back and be part of my life, that would be great. Hey there. Welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. This podcast and any of its associated content does not constitute medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks. I've been there, but I wish you a lot of luck. We're all going through this together, but I can't stress enough just how different we all are, even if we were to have identical medical files. There are so many factors that go into shaping a person's experience of health and illness. Just because something worked for one person does not mean it will work for you or anyone else. I want to ask my audience to be respectful of the very personal decisions of my guests and remember that the choices of others do not affect or reflect anything onto your own choices. The In Sickness and In Health podcast will be about telling our stories as patients and talking about important issues related to health. If you want to know why I think these topics are so important, go back and listen to episode zero, Welcome to In Sickness and In Health. I explain why I started the podcast, what I've learned along the way, and what I hope the show will be. This is a series of interviews with dysautonomia patients for the last week of Dysautonomia Awareness Month. We're putting up a new episode every day, so keep an eye on your podcast feeds or find us at insicknesspod.com. If you want to learn more about dysautonomia, go back to episode one, Dysautowata. Lauren Stiles, the president of the nonprofit group Dysautonomia International, gives us a crash course on just what dysautonomia is. We also talk about diagnostic delay and some of the research her organization has been able to fund. Later in the week, we'll have more episodes with other dysautonomia patients that have different primary diagnoses. Well, my mom grew up with fibromyalgia, and she was always more into the alternative healing style of it because she does not respond well to medication in general. And I think as I was growing up and she saw that, you know, there was something developing in me as well, that she wanted to steer me as far away from, like, Western medicine as humanly possible. And so, you know, growing up, I was seeing a lot of, like, you know, acupuncturists and, and you know, specialists who would make me teas and like, you know, it was a very alternative kind of like healing process that never worked on me. Um, and there was a lot of disappointment in my family that those never worked on me and that I had to resort to taking medications and, you know, really getting, you know, treatment. And as I got older and as we learned more about my disease, I think my nuclear family has become better advocates for me because they understand what's going on now and they recognize that this is not something that like you can wave a wand at and, and say, all better now. 
Did you ever feel like when you were going through all those alternative treatments and they weren't working the way that uh, it was expected of them to work? Uh, did you feel like a failure? I felt like such a huge disappointment. Um, I felt like my mom had succeeded with so many of these treatments. She had really done well with them and she had such high hopes for me. And I always felt like I was really trying. Like I was really, really trying. Like I would, you know, I'd be bored out of my mind and I'd be scared out of my mind, like with acupuncture and stuff. And I was just doing it. Like I was just going to do it and push through it. And anytime I walked out of there and I still felt like crap, I mean, it was just like, I did something wrong here. It's working for other people. Why is it, why is it not working for me? Yeah. This interview is with Alana, a freelance writer, patient advocate, and the managing editor for the blog at Global Genes, a leading rare disease advocacy organization. She's also used her own blog, Let's Feel Better, to chronicle her experiences with a primary immune deficiency disease, dysautonomia, and gastroparesis, which is a paralysis of the stomach muscles that can slow or stop gastric motility. I'll include links in the show notes where you can learn more about each of these conditions. Let's Feel Better was one of the first patient blogs I read after I was diagnosed with dysautonomia. I continued to follow her work for the past couple years, So it was really great to talk to Alana about how she manages her career, the horrors of GI testing, crying in parking lots, and attempting wedding planning while living with a very unpredictable and very time-consuming chronic illness. So when I was 19, I was diagnosed with primary immune deficiency disease, also known as hypogamma globulin anemia. Um, And basically what that is, is um, I'm missing a part of my immune system that helps fight off infections. Uh, so that I'm a little bit more vulnerable than most people to, to having infections and to them becoming severe infections a lot sooner than they should. Um, and because I grew up undiagnosed, I went through the gamut of antibiotics, and now I'm, they're not effective on me anymore. So anytime that I get an infection that becomes serious, I have to be in the hospital and get IV antibiotics and you know be really treated for. So um, with the primary immune deficiency disease, I just feel like I have to be more careful. Like I have to be um, a little bit more ahead of the game in flu season. I have to not ride in, you know, crowded transport. I can't, you know, I just have to be more careful. And that was a lot harder in high school because it was just like every place that you sat and you touched and you walked through was just infection, infection, infection. And so that was keeping an eye out for. And then the other disease that I have is dysautonomia. And it's a large umbrella of symptoms. And the two that affect me the worst are dehydration and low blood volume and uh, gastroparesis. And with the low blood volume, the treatment for that is saline therapy. And um, I get an IV three times a day that I'm able to do at home, thank God. I used to do them at a doctor's office and have to go three times a week for several hours. And uh, I begged and begged and begged for a port, but they wouldn't put one in me because of the immune deficiency. They thought if I you know, got an infection, it would be really, really bad. Uh, three years of, uh, of them using my, my veins and my arms finally took their toll and I had no more veins. So eventually they did have to put in a port and that's actually made my life a whole lot easier. I remember reading about Ilana's port saga as she blogged about it. Many patients who get regular infusions are fitted with semi-permanent access devices that skirt around the problem of overused veins. But like Alana pointed out, her immune deficiency complicated things. There's an infection risk for everyone with these devices, but not being able to fight those infections was what her doctors were worried about. 
A port is a little reservoir that can be injected with medication or hooked up to an IV. It's implanted under the skin in the chest and is connected by a catheter to one of the large veins. Before the port, Alana was actually fitted with a pick line, which is slightly more exposed. It's a tube that gets threaded through an artery in the arm, over the shoulder, and into the heart. The placement of these devices are fairly routine procedures, but like a lot of things for Alana, the process was anything but routine. I never even got to put saline in it. Like <laughs> I had that thing for like three days, and it got a blood clot in it, and they were like, we need to take that out right now. And um, that was not a good not a good time. And the port I also had a problem with because the port, um, it's a surgery to get it put in. And with the surgery, um, because I have a rather large chest, uh, there was a lot of placement issues. Mm. And so when they were trying to get it underneath my skin, they popped my lung. Oh God. Yeah. And, uh, and I woke up from the surgery and I was like, I can't breathe. And they're like, Oh no, you're fine. You're fine. And they took an x-ray and they're like, yeah, you're fine. You're okay. And they sent me home. And like a couple hours later, I'm like, I can't breathe. Like I'm trying to breathe and I can't breathe. So they brought me back to the ER and did an x-ray and they're like, oh, your lung collapsed. (laughs) So they had to put a chest tube in me and I was in the hospital for three days and I didn't even get to use the stupid port until like a month after that because it was so swollen and so like painful. But it works out now. It all worked out. I'm still happy I got it. Yeah. I think that at this point, I feel really... I guess I'm a little less careful than I was a couple years ago just because I feel more in control mm-hmm. of some of the things that happen with my disease. And I don't have to wait for doctors to get past their incompetence to be able to treat me. Um, I have a better team now. I know what my diseases are. I know what happens to my body. And, uh, and so because of that, I feel like I don't have to be as careful do you have a hard time asking for help and you need it? Sometimes my two main like caregivers are my mom and my fiance, RJ. And um, they're a good mm-hmm. team together for me. Um, you know, he takes care of me when I'm at home with him and she takes care of me during the day when I'm like working or if he's working nights or something. Like they're like switch shifts to like help me with things. So I don't feel out of place asking them, especially because it's been, you know, my whole life of me and eight years with RJ, you know, they know the situation. And so I don't have to feel ashamed of what I need. Although there are times when they're sick and I'm sick too. And then it becomes like a, your problems are greater than mine because my problems are every day. So therefore, this is something new and terrible for you. So, <laughs> but I mean, as far as like asking friends and like other people for help, I always feel kind of bad. I like sometimes I need help walking the dog in the middle of the day because I can't be in the sun too much. So if I have to call a friend over, I just feel like I hope I'm not ruining your day. But can you come over? Oh, yeah. Can you tell me about some of the testing that you've had done over the years? With the immune deficiency, it's vaccines, blood tests, blood tests lots of blood tests and seeing if the treatment works and if it doesn't adjusting the treatment with the dysautonomia I was actually diagnosed while I was on a heart monitor and I was admitted to the hospital and um, I leaned down I, I, I was going to the bathroom and I dropped something and I leaned down and the heart monitor just like started going off as I leaned back up and the doctor came running in and he was like what did you just do and I was like, I peed. And he's like, no, you have, must have done something else. And I was like, I leaned down and stood back up. And he had me do it a couple more times. And you know, we just saw it on the heart monitor that it was like going crazy. So that was how I was tested for POTS. Mm. 
Um, and I've had autonomic nervous system testing after that, of course. Um, but that was really my, my first test. What did uh, the autonomic testing entail for you? Um, it's silly. It's like they put a bunch of uh, like those little, what are those sticker thingies? Like the, electrodes? Yeah, those kind of things on your chest and um, in your stomach. And then uh, it's breathing. It's like the Valsalva maneuver. It's standing up and standing down, standing for a couple of minutes and sitting for a couple of minutes and, and laying. It's just a bunch of like little things. Yeah, so that's been pretty easy. The things that have been hard have been anything to do with the gastroparesis, all of the GI tests, and I've had them all. Um, colonoscopies, endoscopies, swallowing tests, barium, everything. It's it's like in the dark ages, GI yeah. testing. It's in the dark ages. It really is, yeah. <laughs> oh, did you think I was going to do a podcast about chronic illness and not talk about poop? Well, my friend, you were sadly mistaken. Everybody poops. And the chronically ill, well, we poop a lot. Or not enough. Either way, it's something we're going to be talking about a lot. Like right now. We're about to start talking about preparing for gastrointestinal testing, which is not fun for anyone and really pretty gross. In order to get a good look at your GI tract, all remnants of food and waste need to be cleared out. This means using one of a variety of preparations to make you poop your brains out. Your brain will actually come out of your butt, but it sure can feel like it does. One of the more unpleasant products, and one that Alana has had extensive experience with, is called Go Lightly. The name makes it sound fun and inoffensive, but the combination of polyethylene glycol and electrolytes is anything but. It draws water from your bowel to clear everything out, and it makes for hours and hours of abdominal cramping and diarrhea. For bowel prep, you have to drink four liters of the stuff. And that's especially not fun if you're already having GI problems. And it's like drinking like poison. You're like, you know what's going in. You know what it's going to do to you. Yeah. <laughs> you're just waiting for your butt to explode the whole time. Yeah. I had, <laughs> I had a, the first time I had one when I was like 13 at my first colonoscopy. And I got off so easy and I had no idea. Like all I had to do was take like a handful of pills and drink four bottles of water. Oh, wow. And that was it. And I mean, I was crying in the bathroom for like hours, but but that was nothing compared to like the go lightly jugs and the, mm-hmm. the it's terrible. They need to fix that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I was really surprised. I didn't realize that there was such like a wide array available. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just so confused as to why some doctors are still making people drink go lightly. Like that doesn't yeah. make any sense at all. When I was in the hospital in February, I had to do, I was staying at Florida hospital for about a week and they were trying to get me through a colonoscopy and they just couldn't seem to like get it done. Like I was drinking everything. It just wasn't working. And so they had me doing the go lightly for, I think it was five nights. Oh every- my God. I just wanted to die. Like it was just the worst, the worst. It was just, it didn't work in the end. So they sent me home. No. <laughs> and this was while you were dealing with gastroparesis too, right? Yeah, this was this was specifically for the gastroparesis. Ugh. Yeah. So you said you didn't get diagnosed, in, at least with the immune deficiency, until you were 19 years old. And you obviously had symptoms for that long beforehand. How long did you have those dysautonomia symptoms, do you think, before you started noticing or before you got that diagnosis? I think it's hard to tell, but I think the dysautonomia for me came on really quickly. Um, but it's hard to tell because a lot of the immune deficiency symptoms that I had overlap and same with the gastroparesis. And I didn't know gastroparesis was part of the dysautonomia, but anyway, I had really the first thing that was sparking the 
the clue that I had something else was that I started having migraines mm. and I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't like a frequent migraine person. Like I just wasn't. And I mean, I would have them and they would just, they wouldn't go away. It was so bizarre to me that like they just were not going away. And I started having to go to the ER to, to get them to like drug me. And once I, I think it maybe took like a week of the migraines before I started feeling like I couldn't sit upright. And anytime I sit up, I would black out. Like my, like my vision would just go black. I wouldn't, faint I would just not be able to see anything um, and had to wait for it to come back and then you know after that it just you know it just continued to become a wonderful adventure it's always yeah. a wonderful adventure with dysautonomia yeah migraines with orthostatic issues are possibly the worst thing yeah I've experienced no that's that might not be true but uh <laughs> you know to to like be dealing with a migraine and then you stand up to go to the bathroom and it's yeah, like the world falls on your head. It's terrible. And I had crazy vertigo too. Oh, I was just like, and I, it was funny because I had just moved out and I moved into an apartment with a spiral staircase, oh, no. and and I was like, I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah, I can't do spiral staircases on my best days. I can't yeah. even imagine. How did you feel when you got your diagnosis, and like, how do you feel about it now? The immune deficiency. I was so far gone by that time. Like I was in such bad shape that, you know, the doctor, when he diagnosed me, just sent me right to the hospital. But I just remember being really overjoyed that there was something and then really, really angry because I knew something was wrong. And here I'd had all these doctors just like shoving me aside and telling me I'm, you know, a hypochondriac and, you know, all these people in my life who were thinking that I had like Munchausen by proxy or something. And I'm like, screw all of you. <laughs> you know, I, I think at some point you start thinking that your disease is just in your mind if it's undiagnosed. You're, oh, yeah, I did. Because like, I went through a similar thing of doctors just telling me like, oh, you're just anxious all the time. Yeah. And, you know, it turns out that I had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Now that I know that, I'm very obviously not so anxious that my joints dislocate. You yeah. know what I mean? When you when you know what's going on with your body at that point, you're like, oh, I can figure out what to expect now. I know like, what I'll look like 10 years, you know, down the road, you know, I know that there's treatment, which was exciting. But then as far as the dysautonomia, um, I was like, Whew, this sucks, because I already have a disease that needs to take care of. And there's no treatment really for dysautonomia. There's no one drug to take. I mean, saline therapy is helpful, but it is certainly not the one thing that you need. I take like 14 pills a day at minimum, and I'm still, you know, somewhat dysfunctional. Yeah, and like different things work for different people. And it's dysautonomia drugs, you know, you can take an SSRI, you can take a sleeping pill, you can take Adderall, you can take Ivabradine or Tenolol or, you know, I mean, there's just like an endless, and they all do different things. Right. You know, it's like, you have to try each one in each category to see if it helps. And even then, like, because I, I, my first beta blocker was a Tenolol, and that didn't really work for me and gave me weird symptoms. And now I'm on Propranolol. And I that backwards. that's another problem that I think a lot of us have is medication sensitivity or insensitivity. I know some people that have to take, you know, monster amounts of certain things and like, it still yeah. barely works. Yeah. I mean, that's me with gastroparesis. I have to take crazy amounts. Of, I mean, medication that would just, you'd be in the bathroom forever. <laughs> <laughs> if it was like a normal person. Can you tell me a bit about your relationship with medication and like, do you have any mixed feelings about it or anything like that? Well, I'll focus on, on this. With the dysautonomia, the medications that I take for that, they're all necessary. I can't function without them. You can't function without your blood pressure and your, your pulse. It like turns you... out they're pretty important. 
Yeah, they are. They're pretty important. You can't you can't fight that. Um, and the same thing goes for me with dyslipidemia with gastroparesis because I'm either going to starve or I'm going to eat and I'm going to be in such excruciating pain that I'm just going to wish I were dead. And so I struggled with a long time with eating because I just didn't want to be in pain. And I didn't know that I had an option not to be in pain because when you have all of these diseases and you have all these problems, doctors don't discuss pain management with you like ever. And I didn't even know like that, that I had any kind of option for that up until well into me knowing that I had dysautonomia and, and really having those migraines. And I remember just like being exhausted and scared and just in so much pain. And, and my, um, my Nana, who also has a lot of migraines, told me to go see her pain management doctor. And I was very hesitant because I didn't want to be a drug addict. Not that I thought my Nana was. Just that, you know, I think when, once you see a pain management doctor, you know, I'm like, the doctor's going to look at me weird now. You know, this is going to be on my file. So I walk in and I start talking to the pain management doctor who's also a neurologist. And he's like, I tell him all my symptoms. I tell him what I'm going through. I tell him what level of pain I'm at. And he's like, all right. So he's like, so you can take like two Percocets a day and then this medication and this medication. We can put you back up with some emergency medication. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa here. Because like a quarter of a Percocet would knock me out for the entire day. So I was like, we're not on the same page. I'm like, I don't think I'm ready for this. Like, I don't think I'm at that point. And so I ended up leaving just for like another week and then like having a really bad episode and realizing that, oh, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm in pain. So I went back and I told him I wanted to start slower. And, you know, he started me up on, you know, like rescue medications. I didn't know I could have rescue medications. Nobody told me that. Like, nobody said you can have a really bad migraine, but you can stop it and put yourself to sleep instead of sitting there for six hours in agonizing pain. Mind blown. <laughs> so so I would say that my relationship with medication has really changed since I started uh, working with pain management. My quality of life is better. Mm -hmm. So you actually wrote a whole book, which is amazing. And I don't understand how anyone actually manages to do that. So can you tell us a little bit about like what that was like and how that process kind of got impeded by your health? I, I've always wanted to write a book and I've, and I've been a journalist for I mean years and I, um, I have a lot of practice writing while under the influence. So, <laughs> so um, the actual writing part of it was not so hard for me. It was a book proposal that I was really pitching, not even a full book. And I, I was just sending it out to different publishers and seeing what they thought. And then if they liked it, then they would give me a contract and I would write the book and then they'd publish it. So it all happened a lot quicker than I thought it would. I think they gave me three months to write the book. And it was like, crap. And then I spent the whole three months that I had it, I was having a migraine flare, like just the worst. I was on painkillers every single day. And I would just try and write before they kicked in and just kind of go from there. But yeah, I mean, I wrote the book. And I was really excited. I had a publishing deal with Demos Health. But unfortunately, part of their company like fell through. Mm -hmm. So I lost the deal and then I was signed by a literary agency. And now I have a deal with New Harbinger books. They're, they're, they do all the self-help books, like all like the anxiety and phobia workbook and the OCD workbook and like all that stuff. So it's not going to be out until 2017, unfortunately, because they have like a really full catalog, but I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that is really exciting. I'm glad that you found a home for your, <laughs> for your writing. Can you tell me about the process of starting your blog and maintaining it over the years and what that's been like? I've always had websites since I was young. I had um, Alana Writes, which is my portfolio website. I used to have it as a blog, but like, I don't know, I was young and I didn't really have much to write about. So I had that website. And then when I turned 18, I, I started like little 
Teen Magazine online. It was an extension of a magazine that I'd written for that was in print while I was in high school. And the president gave me the rights to the organization because she couldn't manage it anymore. And I was like, I'll do that. And so I kind of began this journey of like learning how to put together a website and a blog and how to edit and how to you know find the right people to help me with certain things. And it was great. It was like a total learning experience for me. It was exactly what I needed to be able to move forward at this point and, and do the kind of things I wanted to do without like a second thought. It was a complete year of no money. Like I just did not make any money with this project and that's okay. I still learned from it. It was still a good educational experience, but it was not a profitable one. I'm experiencing that right now with this project. <laughs> yeah, they're good. I mean, you, yeah. you need those kind of things. And, you know, yeah. you'll, you'll find work after that. Like, you'll have experience. So um, I did this teen website, and I started opening other websites. And then I just was buying domain names because I thought they were a good investment. I, um, I'd actually bought a group of domain names that I thought might be good for a pharmaceutical company. And Let's Feel Better was one of them. Um, and so I had just like, a, you know, an index of domain names that I bought and I decided at some point uh, after I got sick with dysautonomia, I decided I wanted to do um, a blog about, about being sick and I figured I'll just grab one of these websites and start it here and then maybe I'll transfer it somewhere else. But I ended up sticking with Let's Feel Better and here we are. Yeah. yeah. How, how long have you had that blog? Um, about three years, I think. How do you manage your career with everything you have going on health-wise? Because that's something that I really struggle with. You know, I work freelance and stuff like that because regular jobs just don't really work with my body. Yeah. Um, and it's it's something that I really struggle with because obviously I don't have a lot of good days and they almost never line up with my deadlines. So I'm curious, you know, what your experience with that has been. Like I've had a lot of practice managing my career from home and I've, I've always worked from home. I never worked like any kind of retail, nothing where I had to be at a counter, nothing where I was in an office, just purely at home work. And I did homeschool too for a while and that really helped me, I think, because mm -hmm. when you work from home, you really have to have that mindset of I'm going to do this at this time on this schedule and you have to be responsible for all of that. I was okay with that. I do freelance and I work a lot through Skype. I work a lot through phone and email. And I basically, I'm very honest with the companies that I work with. I say straight up, I'm like, I cannot travel. I will not be able to travel to you. There's no meetings that I will attend. I purely telecommute. That's my only thing. And I only go with companies who say that's not a problem. The stress builds when you lie about it. When you think, oh my God, they're going to ask me to do something that I'm not going to be able to do. And when I started working for Global Jeans, um, I told them, I said, I can telecommute. I'm like, I will never be able to travel. I'm like, I'll try, but I don't think I'll ever be able to travel to California. It's too long of a flight for me with POTS. And so I didn't go. And it's, I've been working for them for a couple of years now, and I haven't gone to their summit. I've just watched it live streamed, which is great, you know? Yeah, you don't even have to put on pants. Yes, and so many other patients who cannot go due to their own thing get to watch it too. So it's, it's a great thing that they do it online. And um, it was funny because I was on the phone with, uh, I was in a meeting with Global Genes and Lauren Stiles. We were talking about the Global Genes Summit, which is their, their patient advocacy summit, which is once a year in California. And Lauren was saying, like, we were talking to Lauren on the phone and we were talking about, you know, maybe working together on something. She's like, that's great. She's like, I can't fly. I will not be able to fly to you guys. California is too far away. You know, I can, this is where I can drive to. This is how far I can road trip to, but I cannot do any kind of traveling. That And when you're straight up about it, 
it takes the load off you and it's not that big of a deal to other people, I, I don't think. If they're looking to hire someone to telecommute, not coming into the office or going to big events once in a while is not always a deal breaker. Mm-hmm. So yeah, other than that, I keep a Google Calendar schedule and I try to stay on a timer and I, I just, I don't know. <laughs> but like when you're having a stretch of time where you're especially terrible, you know, you're in the hospital, you're oh. dealing with all of that stuff. How do you do it? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of working from the hospital and working from the emergency room. And the only times that I really think I can't do it is when I have a migraine and my migraine medications aren't working. And then I'm really, I'm useless. Like there are times when there's nothing I can do. And for Global Genes, one of the things that I do is I control my own hours working. So I generally just pull a, uh, a night shift, a yes. And so like if I'm in the hospital during the day and I'm in terrible pain and then I come home at night, I wait a few hours until I'm a little more lucid and then I'll start working. But it's really important that I control my own hours because I can't, you know, I can't be responsible for <laughs> for my schedule. It's just not a reality. Yeah, that's something that I've had a, a lot of problems with, yeah. you know, because like I, things need to get done at certain times and, and that sort of thing that doesn't always jive with my body. With writing, I, I generally have enough time as far as deadlines go to like be able to get things done. And then for things that need to be done for my like global genes day job, I use my Google Calendar and I just move things just down, like my hours down and down and down. And be like, I will get to that when I'm not dying. I will get to that. That's very responsible. <laughs> Can you give me a snapshot of a time when somebody said or did something that was really clueless or inconsiderate about your medical condition? Um, I think you're the first person that hasn't laughed at that question. Oh, really? Yeah, because yeah, everyone has like just so many stories. They're like, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> and they just start laughing. The thing is, it's really hard to like offend me at this point because I really do take it as, you know, people are just, they are clueless. They are clueless. And I... I think working in rare disease with global genes, there are so many diseases out there that I'm ignorant about that I wouldn't have known anything about them, you know, so I don't, I really can't get too offended by people saying things that are, you know, off the cuff or whatever, because it's just, it's not their fault. They just don't know any better. And like, it's, you know, you have the burden of educating people. So, I mean, there, there have been situations when um, people have said stuff where like, I was walking through the grocery store the other day and this woman just like stopped me in the dairy aisle and grabbed my hand and was like, what happened to you? Because she saw my port was exposed, and I was like, what? I don't, what? Like, what? Like, I didn't, I, I didn't know. What <laughs> Is my face bleeding? What's happening? Yeah. She's like, your chest. She's like, what happened? And I'm like, oh, that's there. Like, that's always there. It's, it's fine. It's okay. And, you know, and I explained it to her. And she was, she, she was like, she's like, so it's kind of like a diabetes pump. Because my dad has a diabetes pump. And then she went on to tell me, like, about her dad for 30 minutes. And, like, it's totally nothing like that. But okay. I mean, those kind of situations happen all the time. But the only time I get really like offended is when when I'm at the grocery store or somewhere and I park and I park in the handicapped spot and I get and I come back and there's a note on my car. And I feel like anytime I'm walking back to my car, I'm waiting. I'm like waiting to get to my car and I've got this like feeling of dread because I just know that someone's gonna have seen me walk out of my car and they're gonna put something on my window and I'm gonna start crying. And um and it's only happened twice. Well really it's only happened like once to me and once once to be with a note and once to me you know in my face and the note one was rj and i had gone out to dinner and we were we were went out for like a nice date night and i got all dressed up and you know there was a little bit of parking not any that was anywhere close up front except for the handicapped spaces and then there was like a back parking lot which i just couldn't like traverse through it was like nine o'clock by the time we went to dinner and you know i was like spoonless i was like done and we walked out of the car and we, you know, like I went around him and um, 
I held his hand and we walked into the restaurant. And I know I looked happy because I was happy to be there, you know. And when I came back to the car, there was a note on the windshield that says, you don't look handicapped. You didn't look handicapped uh, or walking into the restaurant. Save this for people who actually need it. I was so angry. Like, I was just so, I don't know. I just, I just crumpled. Like, I was just, I felt so, like, brought down by that. Like, you have no idea. And there was, there was, like, no one to, to tell. There was no one to, like, it's not like when someone goes straight up to me and says something, I can educate them. But if you leave a random note, you're just making me feel bad. Like, <laughs> there's nothing I can do to, like, defend myself. So, I'm like, say it to my face. If you say it to my face, I can, I can at least educate you. I just want to make you feel as bad as you just made me feel, buddy. So. Yeah. Um, could you maybe explain a little bit about why you need uh, to park in those spaces and why you might look fine, but actually do need accessible parking? Yeah. Um, so I ended up getting the parking pass like two years ago and I got it because I was so run down with like infections and I was going back and forth to my doctor's office every day to get the IVs. And I would just leave there and I'd be like so devoid of any energy and just really just exhausted to the point where like if I needed to stop for gas or something on the way home, I needed to be in and out. Like I just, I had a time limit. I really had a time limit to like how much energy I was going to have. And, um, and I still needed to do things. I was living independently. I mean, I'm living with RJ, but I'm really living, you know, without like family support. And, um, and throughout the day, I, I have to take care of myself. So if I need to, you know, like I need to go grocery shopping later and if I'm out of spoons, you know, out of energy, then I'm, you know, kind of stuck. Like I have to have some kind of advantage so that I can get through what I need to get through. And so, I mean, it's everything from fatigue to just general pain to migraines that are coming on where I need to get in and out. It's really an in and out thing. Like I'm just, and then the other thing is that I live in Florida again. So summer in Florida is, I mean, it's always hot here, but the summer is so humid. And if I walk from one of the parking lot to another, I'm going to black out. Like no question. Mm -hmm. Like if I can't find a handicap spot during summer, like I leave because there's just no way that I'm going to make it. Not just not just to the store, but there's no way I'm going to make it to the store, inside the store, get what I need to do done, and then walk all the way back. Like it's just and then awesome. drive home. And then drive home. Yeah, yeah, that's. How many times have you gotten stranded in parking lot? Twice. Oh, that's not too bad. Yeah, it's not too bad. I mean, like, oh, well, actually, three times. One time I was just at a Publix and I I was too tired from putting all my groceries in the car, and I couldn't get home, so I had to have my mom come, and then. Another time it was RJ's birthday and I was trying to be like super girlfriend. Like I went ice skating with him. Like we, we had an ice skating party with him. And then I was leaving to go pick up the pizzas on the other side of town for the house party we were going to have. And I got to the pizza shop and I couldn't even get out of the car. I was like, I had to call my friends to like come and get like sneak out of the party and come and get me. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, it's so embarrassing. And yeah. then, and then uh, the most recent one was I wrote about on my blog. I was trying to, I was getting my iPhone fixed. And I kept having to go back and forth to the Apple store and to the Sprint store. And by the time, like by the end of this, like it took like a couple days. And then finally at the end of this whole process, I was in, I was in a parking lot and I was like, mom, you have to come get me. Cause I can't like, there's just no way I got it. I'm like, I, gotta, I have to go home, but I can't drive. Yeah. I've been there. It's not fun because it's like, you know, I, I, you at least have people in your life who like understand the situation and you don't have to explain it too much but like you said it's still really embarrassing to be a young person and like I'm trapped in the parking lot of a grocery store because I'm too (laughs) tired to drive home yeah yeah that's rough have any of your friends disappeared on you 
I don't think I really had that many friends to begin with. Like, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, that period, like, the period where I was, like, a teenager to, like, 21-ish, like, I really didn't have that many friends. And the friends that I had, I didn't really know them too well. Um, and that was because I was always sick and I wasn't going out and I wasn't going to parties. So it was hard for people to get to know me. And it was only once I started the blog again where, you know, people could read what was happening in my life and they could understand it that they were less hesitant to kind of like make it easier for me to socialize with them. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, bringing the party to my house and, you know, making it earlier in the day. So, you know, like my, my, I'm 25. So my, you know, even back then my friends would hang out until like two in the morning and I'm like, that's nap time, bro. Like that is not going to happen. Yeah. So I, I think now more than ever being out about my illness and being like transparent about it has helped me make friends and helped me make my friendships like stronger. Yeah. What do you think might be different if people knew what you go through every day? I can really say that they are different right now. I mean, like I, 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 I think in all the ways that I struggled before I was honest about my condition, I think things have changed. Like I no longer work at a company that doesn't understand what my disease is. I, you know, and they, and they read it online. So even if I say like, you know, you don't always want to get into the conversation of how sick you are. So, you know, I might say one thing to my, <laughs> my boss and then she might read on the website later that I've spent like all day, like being poked and prodded at the hospital. And I'm like, you know, exhausted, whatever that's out there. And, um, and the same thing goes for my friends or they're able to keep track of me and call me if they, if it looks like I need support and I don't have to be the one to ask all the time. You know, it, people are able to offer and it's a lot less embarrassing when people offer than when you're begging for help. Mm -hmm. So I think the website's opened all those doors for me. And I think it'll, you know, it continues. And it's interesting, actually, because my older sister, uh, she lives in Seattle with her boyfriend, Joey. And Joey's 25, and he was diagnosed about two months ago with pancreatic cancer. Yeah, I was just reading that. I just got caught up on your recent posts before we talked. I'm so sorry yeah, to hear that. Me too. I mean, like, you know, like I was writing on there, like, it's one thing to have a chronic illness, but to get slapped in the face with pancreatic cancer at 25, like yeah. at 25. So, and I've been talking to my sister about it and she's struggling a lot with her friends and her whole community of support. Here she was, she thought she had so many great friends and they all just ditched her. Mm -hmm. And it's like people don't, people in, in their 20s, if they're not in the experience of having a chronic illness or a, you know, a rare disease or a, a life-threatening disease, they don't get it. They're not going to get it. They're not, it, it's just not in their reality to go through that. Like they just, they're not interested which is terrible. And I think one of the only reasons, I mean, it's, and it's not because they're mean, right? It's right. not because they don't love you or consider you a friend. It's just because it's not of their emotional capacity to handle that just yet. And I think they have no concept of what might even be involved in all yeah. of that. You know, like, it's probably pretty easy for us to imagine, you know, the doctor's appointments and the treatments and the tests and all of that stuff. And then also understand the personal side of being very vulnerable physically and having to rely on other people. And that just is something that if you haven't had any experience with, whether you're young or old, I think it probably doesn't even matter what your age is. It's just impossible to wrap your brain around. It really is. Yeah. It really is. And so I've, I'm hoping that she will start her own blog or maybe he will 
you know, I know that she's struggling with that right now, just being a first time caregiver and just feeling alone. And it sucks, really sucks. It's like, you know, I don't want her to feel alone. I, I don't want her to think that her friends are not supportive. It's just one of those things that you have to kind of muddle through. Yeah. Is there anything that you beat yourself up for? Um, yeah. The gastroparesis gets me all the time. Like, it's like I think I know what I should be eating, but I don't. You know, I some days are it, it goes in like a tiered kind of diet it's like you have Gatorade and broth then you have Gatorade broth and bread then you have Gatorade broth bread and pasta and then you know and on and on and on until you're like reaching actual foods that normal people eat and I don't always know where I am specifically because I might be broth and bread and then the next day I feel perfectly fine I'm like I can eat a taco and like I cannot eat a taco I yeah. should not eat a taco tacos are a bad idea in general yeah so, um, so I get mad at myself because I'm like, I should have known better. Like, I really should have. It's not like I have never been here before. It's not like this is the first time that I've, like, had this experience, you know. So there's there's lots of moments where I'm, like, in my bathroom and I'm like, you're, you're a failure. So. Yeah. Can you tell me about doing wedding planning while you're chronically ill? Yeah. That's been um, an adventure. I get a stomachache just thinking about it. I don't blame you. The whole thing sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> well, it's so funny. It's, you know, everyone tells you, like, you're going to start wedding planning and you're going to think you're going to have this quaint, small wedding. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're inviting 400 people. <laughs> First of all, we got engaged two and a half years ago. So we're, we're a little slow on the party planning here. And so we looked for venues forever and we... We, we ended up finally getting a wedding planner because, like, I just couldn't get my crap together. Like, I just couldn't do it. And uh, it's been um, interesting. I've, like, I've tried to – we've had a couple appointments where I have to go in and, like, like go to the florist or go to the caterer. And the caterer was interesting because um, the week that we went for our tasting, I couldn't eat. And I was worried about that because I was like, I just know that the week that we go into that, I'm like, I'm not going to be on a solid food diet. And I'm like, I just know it. And so I had to eat it anyway because I had to try it for the wedding. So I ate it and then I was sick for like two days afterwards. You got to do what you got to (laughs) do. And then when I was wedding dress shopping, oh my God, those things are so heavy. And when I was like first trying them on, I I tried on like two dresses and I was like, I'm done. I can't even like zip another zipper. And in the end, over a period of a couple of weeks, I ended up trying on like 40 dresses before I found the one that I like. And I have a hard time going jeans shopping. I can't imagine dress shopping. It's yoga pants all the time. Yeah. Yeah, no, the wedding dress shopping was really hard. And I'm nervous about it too, because like, you know, your wedding dress is supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be tight corset, kind of giant fluffy thing. And its slogan is not like, these are the pajamas of your matrimony. Like, it's just, it's... <laughs> but it's, maybe, maybe it should be. Maybe they should be. So I'm nervous because they're about to tailor the dress that I got. And I mean, it's so tight around my chest and it feels like I can't breathe. And it makes me nervous just to be in it because I feel like I'm being just sucked into the dress and I'm so not used to like being so uncomfortable. It's all I can focus on when I have so many other pains in my body. You need to like let this out everywhere <laughs> and like fix it because I cannot be drowning in a dress on my wedding day. It will put me to a panic attack. I'm not going to be able to deal with it. And same thing for like the shoes. And, you know, I think I'm going to end up wearing flats. Yeah, but it's coming up pretty soon. We're December 19th is the day. So uh, the time just seems to be passing really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. I'm even more ready to go on my honeymoon now. I'm just... Where are you guys going? We're going to the Poconos. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to like a little ski lodge in the Poconos. And uh, I've never seen snow before. Oh, really? Yeah. And like, because we live in Florida and I can't... I didn't want to go like anywhere tropical because we live in tropical and I right. and I didn't want to go anywhere where we'd be swimming because I can't get this thing wet. So I was like, let's go to a mountain. 
So well, the Poconos are lovely, and snow is snow is also lovely if you don't have to deal with it all the time. Yeah. That's what I think it's going to be. You know, like a nice, oh, this is fun. And then you get to go home and like not deal with it after a few days. For us in New York, it's just a very long, cold, (laughs) horrible winter. Is there anything that you really worry about with your health? Something big, something small, just something that like takes up a lot of space in your brain for the future? Two things. Again, one, the gastroparesis. I worry, I worry that it's getting worse over time and that, that my medications are becoming less and less effective. And so that might mean that I need to have some kind of surgery in the future to you know, make eating not such a challenge for me. Um, and the second thing is pregnancy. I think about pregnancy all the time and like what I'm going to end up doing. You went to talk to a high-risk OB, didn't you? Yeah, yeah I did. A year ago, because I gone to my gynecologist and I told him, I'm like, I'm concerned because I'm on a lot of medication. When you look at these medications and tell me how bad it would be if I got pregnant right now. And like, I'm not looking to get pregnant by mm-hmm. right now. But, um, you know, and he looked over it and he's like, these are all bad. You really can't be on any of these. Bye. And oh, that's like, helpful. Yeah. So I did go to see um, like a high risk OBGYN. And she basically told me that from that point, like if I took two years to really get off all my medications and, you know, do my best to like switch the medications that were better for pregnancy, then, you know, I might still have a high risk pregnancy, but I, I, I could get through it. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually working with my, uh, my concierge doctor now. We've been working for the last like month or two, just trying to slow down on some of my medication. And we're going to work more on it when I get back from my honeymoon. But, but I know it's going to take at least another year and a half, if not two full years before I'm to any kind of like level of health where I'll be okay. And then, you know, I know that when I, when I am pregnant, it's going to be, you know, it'll be a challenge and it'll be a challenge trying to find a good OBGYN who will speak with my doctor on a regular basis and, you know, make sure that I'm on my feet and, uh, you know, taken care of. But fortunately that's not something I'm really, it's not happening today. So (laughs) it's okay. What are your goals and priorities like with the management of your condition? I'd really like to get on a diet that is sustainable for me. um, And I'd like to find the right medications. Well, it's always a matter of like, I want preventative instead of like rescue. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to do all the preventative things I can for pain and for migraines and for the gastroparesis attacks. So that's something I'm, I'm kind of like working on for the future. Uh, My last question is, what would you say to somebody who was just diagnosed this morning? Oh my God, you're going to (laughs) die. No, but can I tell you that when I was first diagnosed, I, uh, a woman called me who had dysautonomia and told me just like her worst horror stories. Oh, that's helpful. Why would you do that? She's like, I gave birth in the cardiac unit and I almost died. And I was like, okay. Um, no, I mean, I would say it's a very manageable disease. And I mean, it's, you have to be on top of it and you have to be on finding the right doctors to be on top of it. And you have to, as soon as you get diagnosed, take responsibility of it and know that it is, you know, a being in and of itself that you have to take care of. And if you, you know, if you ignore it, if you try and, you know, psychoanalyze yourself out of the fact that it's real, you're going to have a bad time. So just, (laughs) just accept that this is what's happening and start doing everything in your possibility to improve the quality of your life little step by little step and it will be little steps but eventually you can work yourself up to the right treatment plan where you're going to be able to be as functional 
maybe not as functional as you want to be, but very close to it. Yeah, that's a good answer. Well, Alana, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to In Sickness and In Health. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and stay tuned for everything we have to come. And check out our other episodes celebrating Dysautonomia Awareness Month that are up this week. We'll have a new episode up every day. You can find us at InSicknessPod.com and on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at InSicknessPod. You can find us in your podcast feeds or at InSicknessPod.com and on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at InSicknessPod. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And tell your family, tell your friends, tell your doctors. But most importantly, don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.